Welcome to the sermon podcast of Redemption Church. The following sermon is by Pastor Gary Alloway. Okay, Ephesians 4, 1 to 16. We haven't mentioned this in a few weeks, but Ephesians was most likely written by the Apostle Paul. And what do we know about the Apostle Paul? <laughs> what was that? He's mean. Hold on to that thought, because we're going to get to that. Uh, a, a former Christian killer? Uh-huh. Pharisee. He was a Pharisee? Yeah, he was one of the teachers of the law. He was a member of the religious class, and the Pharisees were people that wanted to purify Israel by getting back to the strictest interpretation of the law. Anything else? He was on the Isle of Patmos, right? Or is that Peter? That's actually John. Okay, but good try. Yeah, he does end up, um, Paul, by tradition, ends up in Rome, where he is killed by the emperor Nero. He was an early persecutor of the church before he had a miraculous conversion and meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. And after a time in exile, Barnabas finds him, and they begin planting churches all over the ancient world. So these are things we know about Paul. But second question, do we like Paul? <laughs> Julie is giving a, a strong no. Mm-mm, he is mean. Anybody else have some similar feelings sometimes when you encounter Paul? Like as a guy? Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. would you want to hang out at a party with Paul? Paul is not an easy soul to get along with. And for a long time, I really struggled with Paul because I thought he was a theology bro. You guys know what I mean by theology bros? Hey, I have a picture of some theology. Oh, there's Paul. Um, But go to the next one. You guys know theology bros? You know what I'm talking about? They have big beards. They're they're inherently a cishet white guy who may or may not actually have theological training, but they love Twitter, and they love fighting on Twitter. And the only thing that matters to a good theology bro is being right. Doesn't matter. Kindness doesn't matter. Love doesn't matter. None of that mushy-gushy relational stuff. That's all nonsense. What's right is right is right, and it's worth And you can shut anybody else down in any tone you want in order to be right. And if we're not careful, Paul comes across this way, right? That what's right is right is right, and my opinion is right, and anybody else is dead wrong, and I'm allowed to say whatever I want to them in order to make sure they know that I'm right. So we, we know the famous story of uh, Peter con- or Paul confronting Peter and telling him that he's wrong to his face. We know that he tells other Christian leaders they're false leaders, right? Those so-called super apostles, he'll say, in his sarcastic air quotes. He tells the Galatians that if they're going to insist on circumcision, they should just go ahead and chop their wieners off. He's a pretty cranky dude, right? I mean, like, like if that's not a Twitter comment, right? I don't know what is. And for a long time, this made it hard for me to read Paul. And then one day, some of you guys may have heard me say this before, I realized that Paul is not an angry theologian. He's actually an angry pastor. (laughs) And that matters. Paul has traveled all over the ancient world, right? He goes all over with Barnabas and with other partners, and they plant churches. And immediately after they plant these new churches founded in the good news of Jesus, what happens? Mess it up. The churches want to split. 
That's like the first thing they want to do, right? You give them like six minutes after Paul leaves and they're already like, well, you guys go over there. We go over here. Let's have two separate meetings. You guys are wrong. Let's kick those guys out. They want to split and start a Jewish church and a Gentile church, right? Two different churches. They want to split and start a church for Romans and a church for Greeks. You can't have any of that Latin nonsense in here. They want to split into the liberals and the conservatives. That's what's going on in the Galatians. The rich folks and the poor folks want to have separate meetings. We see that in Corinthians. The rich folks want to have big, lavish community meals, and the poor folks just barely get off their shift, and there's no food left. They want to split the men and the women, the slaves and the free. The first century church constantly wanted to break up into factions and affinity groups. Not only split over things that were different, but also just huddle up with everyone just like them. And what does Paul say to that? No. Yeah. And does he say it softly? No. No, he does not. Does he say, well, I can see it from both sides, or, hey, everybody needs their own spaces, or, you know, like, no, he says, absolutely not. No exceptions. I'm not budging on this one. No freaking way. Paul is emphatic in this point. And we should pay attention to that. Because Paul has a vision, right? A gospel that is open to all, to everyone, regardless of ethnicity, of gender, of social class, of where we have been or where we're going. Paul has a vision of a new community where every tongue, tribe, and nation are being sewn together into the body of Christ. Paul doesn't see everyone becoming the same in that, but in our very differences, He says that if we can hold together in Jesus, when we learn to love one another as Christ loved us, even in our differences, somehow we come to reflect something so much bigger than just like a religious gathering or a social club. Paul has already said this earlier in Ephesians. This is Ephesians 2, verses 21 and 22. In Christ, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And in our passage for this morning, Paul concludes it by saying, We will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. So in some mystical way, when we love each other, Paul says we're the temple. Like this community becomes the temple. The place where God dwells more presently on earth than anywhere else. The place where all people can come to meet God. The place where the healing and forgiveness and love of God are most present. Paul says that when we love one another, we may have gotten lost in this analogy because we use it so much, we're somehow mystically the body of Christ on earth. So again, we use that phraseology a lot, and maybe it's lost its meaning, but imagine your favorite Jesus story. Somehow, we are that. Maybe it's the prodigal son or the demoniac who's healed or the woman who anoints Jesus' feet. Whatever that piece of incarnation is, that touch of Jesus that comes and heals, we are somehow that. 
Elsewhere, Paul will say, we're meant to be the new family of God, and our life together is meant to be a picture of the age to come. When we learn to love one another, people can look to us and, like, touch heaven. That's really profound, right? Now, Paul has a very high view of the church, but it starts with things holding together. And when we split, when we start factions, when we only huddle up with people like us, we fall short of this vision. So when Paul sees Peter falling back into this and huddling up with people just like him, what does he say? Absolutely not. No. Right? He's not soft about it. And when he sees the Galatians excluding their Gentile brothers and sisters, he says, stop it. No. And when he sees the Romans forming Jewish and Gentile churches, one church for this group, one church for that group, he tells them they both have to get over themselves. You're both a bunch of dirty sinners. Stop it. Get over it. You're only here by the love of God. Church unity matters a lot. At least if we take Ephesians 4 seriously. When we hold together in unity, God dwells in us in a unique way. Do we know that? When we learn to love even through our differences, we become Christ to a weary world. Amen? Amen. As Paul says, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And for most of church history, people took this calling really seriously. For the first thousand years of the church, there were always rivalries and factions, of course, but people believed there was only one church. This was the, the like, ideal that they all aspired to. And even when the Catholics and Orthodox split in 1054, they both excommunicate each other, which sounds like it's a permanent break, but excommunication is actually a way of saying we are out of communion now. Not that we're forming two separate churches, but we are out of harmony now, and the thing is supposed to come back together. It's supposed to be healed. And even in the Reformation, Martin Luther believed he was reforming the church, not splitting it. So even there, even in that, that ideal of one Lord, one faith, one baptism still holds, even as we see the things start to splinter. It's really only been in the last 200 years that we've seen this. Hey, podcast listeners, I know you can't see the slide that Gary's talking about. I'll post a link to it in the episode notes, but it is a timeline of Christianity, and it has hundreds of entries, hundreds of church splits and different kinds of churches formed from it. It's pretty overwhelming. So let's get back to Gary. I know you can't read that. (laughs) And that's kind of the point, right? And what's sad is this is an oversimplification. I mean, I can find the Mennonites on one line there, and I know how many different factions and breaks there are within the contemporary Mennonite church. And again, the church has always had its divide. People divides. People didn't just magically get along in the early church. But I I think in the last 200 years, something different's happened. Like, I think we've completely lost the script. 
Paul says that there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and we all shrug. And so now in the 21st century, if you want, you can join a hipster megachurch with high church aesthetics. If you want, if that's who you are. Or you can join a politically conservative church for middle class white people. Right? Church has kind of become like ordering a Tesla, right? You can like go on and customize exactly what you want. And so that you never have to be part of a community with anyone who is different than you. You never have to put up with cultural differences or personality differences or class differences. And if anyone calls you out for anything or makes you too uncomfortable, you know what you can always do? Let's find another one. Find another one. Find another church of people who are more like you. And it's not surprising that this view of church has risen at the same time we've normalized no-fault divorce, right? We've become people who are quick to leave rather than grow through the thing. And this is sad because it is in going through the thing that we grow. It is in working through the thing that we mature. It is in learning to love the other person that we grow in the love of Christ. It is in the mosaic, right? When all the unique tiles come together to form the whole, that we are most fully the temple of God, the place where God most fully dwells on earth. And I'll keep using that mosaic imagery, right? Where it's like each tile's different. They're not all meant to be the same. But when they hold together, the beauty of the thing comes out. And you know, like a marriage, there's probably times to leave, right? If something's truly abusive or your humanity's being denied, obviously you can be called away from a local church geographically or if you feel called to a new mission in a way you can't in a marriage. But we've made it too easy. And I know, like, I have a biased position as the pastor of the church you're all presently at. So I guess if if this has any, like, credibility, 20 years from now, if we're all at different churches... I hope I would preach the same message. Don't leave. Don't leave easily. Don't leave over petty things. Don't leave because people are different than you. Stick with it and grow through it and learn to be the body of Christ together. And only leave when all other options are exhausted with tears in our eyes. Because when we go through it, When we grow through it, we become the living temple of God, the body of Christ, the tabernacle of the Spirit. And I know I've been burned by having such a high view. I know that. But I'd rather go for the big thing, honestly, than settle for some consumer product we just trade out every time we're slightly dissatisfied. And because I've seen it, When we love one another, Christ is here. When we care for one another, the kingdom of heaven is here. And when we choose to stick with it together, God dwells here in a deeper way than I can possibly describe. As Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of of the Spirit through the bond of peace There is one body and one spirit, 
just as you were called into one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the calling we've been given. Amen? Amen. That's the easy part. And I've just given you my ideals and my opinions, which I hope are Paul's too. I hope I'm reflecting this. I know I'm not good at this. I know this is an easier said than done sort of thing. I know personally that I've been culturally conditioned like the rest of us to leave situations that are hard, to find family with people who look just like me, and to make enemies of those who hurt me or disagree with me. I know that. I personally am more gifted as a truth teller than a reconciler. And if I'm honest, all the political events of the last seven years have made this so much worse. The divisions that I can feel toward my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ are deep and broken and can feel irreconcilable. And so I think Paul gives us a couple practical tips here, and I'm going to come back around to that. But as I sat in this passage this week, it felt like my first calling was just to repent. And when I say repent here, I'm, I don't just mean feel bad. I mean actually allow God to, to, to surrender ourselves to God and allow God to come and make us new. To admit to God that I'm broken, that I'm hurt, that I need God to heal to admit that I'm not good at it, that I need new tools. Kind of like AA, to admit that without God, I'm not going to get this right. Without a higher power, I'm not actually going to become new. And as I sat with it this week, this is what my prayer was to God, to give me a new heart. So before we get into the practicals, I want to ask you the same. Where do you need God to give you a new heart in this? Where are you stuck? Where are you hurt? Where are you broken? Where do you need the Spirit of God to actually come and do something new? I invite us to stick with that prayer this week. One thing to feel conviction on Sunday and then go out on Monday and just forget all about it. So um, as much as we're able, stay with it. As we look to this topic, Paul does give us a couple practical things here that I do think help. So as we think about the church and what it means to hold together in unity, here's a couple things that Paul says. Verse 2, Paul says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. 
I love this little phrase, bearing with one another in love. Do you feel the tension on that sentence? That's great, right? It says we can actually mess it up in both directions. So first of all, right, sometimes we go to church with people we really like, and that's awesome. And there's no reason we should, like, feel bad about that. But I think Paul also says if it's too easy, if community is too easy, you might be doing it wrong. You may have huddled up in a group that's too much like you. Paul says that the growth in becoming the body of Christ actually is in some of the heart. It's that when we are in community with people that are different than us, maybe personality-wise, culture-wise, theologically, if, if our community it doesn't make us a little bit uncomfortable, then we do need to grow in that. So Paul says, bear with one another, right? The very fact that he uses bear with one another means it's not always going to be easy. Sometimes people are going to frustrate us or annoy us. We have to bear with them. At the same time, Paul doesn't say bear with them in annoyance or resentment. Paul doesn't say mumble under your breath about them or go home and complain about them. He says bear with them in love. So that person might frustrate us, but we still choose to love. So we choose to see the other person's differences not as a problem or as a threat. We choose to esteem them and their gifting and to build them up. We choose to belong to one another, right? Even if that person is different. We choose to put on our Jesus goggles and see them as Christ can see them. Both wonderfully gifted and also deeply in need of grace and love and encouragement. That's all of us, right? And we choose love in this case because we don't naturally feel it for those we have to bear with. It's a choice. It's a choice to be bound together in the body of Christ. But I've also experienced that when we choose love, it does change us. It does soften us. We do come to appreciate that person and even enjoy them at times. Even as we say, man, that person's annoying, but they are my brother, they are my sister, and I love them. And I begin to, even at times, come to really like them. Have you experienced that? That when you choose love, sometimes it turns into like in some kind of neat ways. So Paul says, bear with one another in love. If community is a little too easy, we might be doing it wrong. But also if community is a little too hard, we might be doing it wrong. Let, that, let both sides of that phrase kind of get in your soul a little bit. Bear with one another in love. And of course, if you're having trouble with love, go back to the love of Christ. And that kind of leads to the second thing that Paul says. It's bigger than all of us. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Again, what Paul says binds us is not our common interests, our common personalities, our common preferences, or our common politics. We're bound by a thing much bigger than us, right? So when we disagree with one another, when we hurt one another, the thing that pulls us back together is not the fact that we're, we're like best friends in that moment. Or even that it's like, oh, I know we should make up. It's that God is bigger. We're bound by something bigger than ourselves. And so neither of us are here because we've earned it, right? Both of us are here because we've been radically loved by God in a way bigger than both of us. 
And so when we deal with those different than us, our posture shouldn't be you versus me or even you do your thing and I do mine. I think it's a posture of the thing is bigger than both of us and we're both probably wrong. We find our unity not in our similarities, but in a God and a faith that is bigger than us all. Amen. Amen. <laughs> and I'm not saying, you know, we give up all our convictions or there's no right and wrong, but in the posture of humility, there's the possibility of healing. And in the posture of antagonism, there's not. I can't always guarantee that the healing will come, but in humility, there's at least the possibility and antagonism, there just never is. So we find our unity in the bigger thing. And lastly, use your gifts to build up the body. Use your gifts to build others up, not to divide into camps. One of the worst things in church leadership is when someone comes to you and says something like, worship is super important to me and no one here cares about worship, so I'm going to go to the church that, only, that cares about worship. And then, of course, the next week someone will come and be like, social justice is super important to me and no one here cares about social justice, so I'm going to go to the social justice church over there. And I can keep going, but you get the point. And the result of this is we do this, right? And then we end up with churches that are silos. One church is really good at social justice, but has no pastoral care. One church is really good at teaching, but has no outreach programs. One church is really good at prayer, but, you know, I can keep going, right? This is not the picture Paul paints. Paul says that each of us's grace has been apportioned by Christ. So each of us has gifts. Paul, so in verse 11 and 12, he says, So Christ gave them apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. He says that actually the body of Christ works best when this diversity of gifts all comes together. And that means you're always going to feel a little uncomfortable because your gifts are not going to be the only gifts of the church. And your job is to use those gifts to help lead the entire church in that direction. So I'm being a little facetious here, but if you love worship, you should join a church that sticks at worship and dig in. And if you love social justice, find a church that sticks at it and dig in. Take the lead. Be the voice. And it doesn't mean do all the work and resent everyone else. Paul actually says the reasoning of these gifts is to equip the saints for ministry, right? That the gifts we have are meant to build up the entire body of Christ in that area. So use your gifts to build up the body, not to turn everybody else into yourself. And let others lead you in their gifts as well. This is where Paul would say, would probably quote JFK, right? And say, ask not what your church can do for you, but what you can do for your church. Or as N.T. Wright put it, where does your church need to grow towards maturity? What gifts has God given to enable this to take place? Or as St. John of the Cross would say more mystically, where there is no love, don't critique, don't tear down. Put in love, and there you will find love.
So our family finished reading The Goblet of Fire this week. Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Who's read uh, The Goblet of Fire? There's this scene in the end, after we realize that Voldemort is back, where they're all in Dumbledore's office, and Snape, Severus Snape and Sirius Black are both there, right? And both of their responses are, what's that guy doing here? And it just was wonderfully, like, a wonderful echo of my experiences in church ministry. Where all the Snapes go, we can't allow Sirius here. And all the Siriuses go, we can't allow Snape here. But the reality is, the Order of the Phoenix only works with a Sirius and a Snape. Amen? Did I lose you on my Harry Potter analogy here? The last thing you want is an army of Severus Snapes, right? If you can imagine that, that's the worst Order of Phoenix possible. The last thing you want is an army of Sirius Blacks. They're all undisciplined and mopey and kind of grumpy. The whole thing works when we realize we're not the same. But when we allow the mosaic to be the mosaic. A mosaic of all red tiles would be pretty stinking lame, right? So I encourage us to go through it and to grow through it, even when it's uncomfortable, to stick with it. And Paul says that when we do, we somehow mystically become the temple and the tabernacle, the place where God most fully dwells, the place where all nations can come and meet God, the place where all things are being made new. To find out more about Redemption Church, visit redemptionbristol.org.